Hello, friends. We are back of episode 146 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Yes, we are in almost mid-December already, so if you haven't done your holiday shopping, boy, you better start if you're celebrating <laughs> soon for that. But anyway, we're going to kick in this home stretch of wrapping up a very excellent year of our content as we've been documenting on Our Weekly itself. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm delighted you join us from wherever you are around the world. And joining me as we are wrapping up this excellent year is my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. Trying to finish out the year strong, like I'm sure a lot of other folks are. Looking forward to some some time off here uh, at the, the turn of the, the new year and uh, just trying to trying to make that last push. Yep, we were all marking amongst each other that we're both shipping it, so to speak. Some big apps that we're making at the day job to get them out the door so we can relax the rest of the year. And for me personally, hoping to go down a few uh, rabbit holes that I've been putting off for a while. And one of them is a three-letter word, N-I-X, or Nix. So you will be hearing about that hopefully early next year in my findings on that. But nonetheless, we're here to talk about our current Our Weekly Issue that has been curated by John Calder. And as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like you all around the world. And we lead off with, you know, I always love the intersection of data science and sports. And of course, my favorite sport, hockey, is in full swing with its NHL season. And um, there can be some interesting ways you can mine the data to answer some, or maybe stress test some hypotheses that are floating out there. And that's where our first highlight is going to come in. It comes to us from Josh Lawrence. He goes by J-Wall on his blog. And in particular, he has stumbled upon a chapter from a very influential philosophy-like book by Malcolm Gladwell talking about how in Canadian junior hockey, there seems to be a higher likelihood for players to be born in the first quarter of the year. Well, that kind of uh, makes my head scratch a little bit. Now, this hypothesis is there because the age eligibility cutoff for the junior leagues in Canada is January 1st. So one might think that if those that are born earlier in the year might have a quote-unquote leg up on their competition or their peers as they're moving up the ranks in the hockey uh, farm system up in Canada. Now, again, makes my head scratch a little bit, but how likely is this really in practice, and can we use data to answer this? Well, that's where exactly uh, Josh actually goes to answer some of this. Now, what is the first step, right? Well, we kind of need to get a sense of the overall Canadian population's distribution of birth months amongst the birth dates, if that's readily available. And sure enough, it is. So Josh was able to grab data from Statistics Canada and be able to, once he was able to locate a CSV of these uh, birth dates, which admittedly were not quite friendly at first glance, but that's where data processing with the tidyverse comes in. He was able to massage out a little bit and get a nice little tidy data frame to compute kind of the expected distribution of birth dates amongst all Canadian residents for a certain number of or a certain range of years. And so that can be can categorized as our reference data. Now comes hockey player data. And I know from many adventures many years ago that there are multitudes of places online to grab NHL player statistics, team statistics, a boatload of statistics out there. 
and in particular the NHL themselves, expose an API where you can grab diff different uh, statistical information from teams and players. Apparently they've changed their API in the recent maybe year or so because there was an R package that was tasked with great grabbing data from the NHL API, but unfortunately because of the API changes, it apparently does not work anymore. That means getting your hands on with the HTTR package to grab certain uh, endpoint requests and be able to translate the JSON that's coming back from that and putting, out, putting that into a tidy data frame for further processing. There is a lot of wrangling going on here, but um, Josh does take a great approach. That is, he, you know, as he uh, encounters a way to standardize this a little bit for each team, instead of like, you know, copying this 20 sometimes, makes a function to handle all this and uses a map reduce kind of framework with PER to make all that happen. And then with JSON Lite, being able to unpack that raw JSON and then grab that into a, a tidy data frame so that he can now compute the distribution of the birth months for the NHL players. Again, there's some great code in the blog post, lots of great tidyverse code um, to, to handle all that, some transposing. Again, the real world, right? Real world data, no matter if it comes from an API or not, sometimes isn't the most friendly for a tidy analysis. So once all of that is in place, of course, we got to see how these uh, distributions compare, right? And another awesome visualization. We love uh, plugging the visualizations here on our weekly. A great ggplot2-powered chart that leverages the ggimage package to give a little extra flair by putting the icons for the Canadian and NHL League um, on these bars that are going horizontally for each month, comparing the percentage of bursts for each of those in a really nice uh, display where you can quickly see the deltas or the differences between the overall Canadian population and the NHL players. And sure enough, January and February do have a pretty wide difference. I'm looking at right now as I speak, and the January frequency for birthdays for NHL players is right around 11% versus 8% for the Canadian population. So there definitely is something going on here. There are some interesting differences going the other way for the end of the year, which again may set, lend a little credence to that earlier hypothesis. So why this is, yeah, I mean, that's all up for speculation. But to round out the post, you know, true to statistical roots, he decided to run a little inference on these frequencies with a chi-square test. And sure enough, that p-value is significant at the 0.05 level, meaning that these are not the same distributions. There is definitely a difference there. So great data-driven way to investigate this hypothesis. And apparently, yeah, those of you in Canada that are playing in the hockey farm system, if you're born early in the year, I guess you're getting some benefits because a lot of people are doing that same thing. <laughs> Although, yeah, who knows what kind of patterns might emerge from other analyses around this. But Overall, great approach to wrangling this data, great approach to the visualization, and you can always pick up a few nuggets from these posts, and it's a great um, return to the highlights from Josh. He's been a previous contributor here, and it's great to see his uh, data-driven insights here. So I don't know a whole lot about hockey, Eric, but I've heard that Connor McDavid is one of the best players in the league right now. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right, yep. 
Guess when his birthday is? January 2nd. I have no idea. January 13th. Hey, I wasn't far off. Wow. Not far off. So I don't know. You know, it's quite anecdotal, but we're, you know, there's a little uh, little confirmation there of, of uh, the, the uh, author's um, hypothesis. So I don't know. We'll see. I always thought sort of the opposite. Like if you were later, born later in the year, you'd be sort of playing with the older kids. Mm-hmm. And if you're playing with the older kids, that, that tends to, to get you better. But I don't know. It's an interesting couple of hypotheses here. And then obviously not just sitting around uh, talking about it and wondering uh, about whether that's true or not, but actually going out, getting some data and taking a look yourself. So what an awesome sort of end to end post uh, from actually going out, like you said, and leveraging the HTTR package to scrape data, essentially, from these resources via a a GET request, this nice API that we have uh, available for this NHL data uh, in Canada. And to me, at the beginning, it it felt sort of Bayesian, like we're we're taking a look at the the prior would be sort of the distribution of, of birth dates for everybody in Canada. Um, and then maybe we're, we're updating that with, uh, you know, the, the, the birth dates for NHL players specifically. But uh, it wraps up with a, with a chi-squared test, which maybe actually is, is even more appropriate, uh, but, but just sort of a different way to approach the same problem. And that chi-squared test comes back uh, with a p-value of, of very low, I think less than uh, 0.007, I think something like that. Uh, so that's that's telling us that those two distributions, the distribution of, of birth dates of just any old uh, person in Canada versus those who have become a, an NHL player uh, are significantly different. And that, that data visualization, that ggplot uh, that he creates is is very telling as well. You know, it looks like uh, January through July, right? There's a higher proportion of uh, NHL players than with birthdays January through July uh, compared to the rest of the Canadian population. Um, and then sort of you get an entirely different switch uh, August through December where the proportion is lower. Uh, it's really, really interesting. Great data visualization, great use of, uh, as you said, the GG text and the GG image package where uh, he, he's essentially using the, the geom image function from GG image to instead of plot points, uh, those points are the images of the Canadian flag and the NHL logo. And the way that the images, the way that the plot is structured is sort of like, I think, a, a dumbbell plot or a lollipop plot. I've seen them called um, where there is a line between those two logos, which really shows you sort of the distance, uh, the relative distance between the population of folks born in that month uh, who are just Canadian citizens versus uh, those who are NHL players. So a great, great way to visualize this data to not only, you know, return a chi-squared statistic value, but also to be able to present that visually at the same time. So hats off to Joshua on this blog post. Like you said, it's great to see uh, him back in the highlights and hope to see more blog posts at the intersection of sports and statistics. It's it's definitely a fun place uh, for me personally to read on. Yeah, and then with the advent of data that's becoming more available, albeit, you know, there, you can't get everything, right? One area I've been really interested in is, you know, we're seeing in sports like NBA and others, a more the quote-unquote real-time kind of volume of metrics, uh, 
looking at possession shots and everything like the time stamps in these hockey is getting along there but a lot of that data you know is being collected by individual teams for obviously competitive reasons so there's not a whole lot on that space open yet but there, there's still some stuff opening up and um, I was actually you know big surprise I'm a podcaster and I listen to podcasts but I was listening to a, a hockey podcast and we're starting to see some interesting applications of deep learning with respect to predicting team performance as well so there's a lot of a lot going on in the analytics space but it's great to answering these kind of questions where it's much easier to get this kind of data that's more of the static variety but there's no shortage of questions you can investigate and i'd be really curious if other you know sports have a similar phenomenon with their athletes compared to overall population so Maybe it's similar in football or, or basketball. Who knows? But, you know, uh, Josh's post here gives a great approach for you to investigate those as well because the data is out there. Just got to do a little massaging to get it into the right format and, and throw it for your favorite visualization package. Absolutely. No, it's such a, a big and growing field right now. I was just checking out the Zealous Analytics website the other day. Shout out to that team. They have some, I think they do a lot of work in R. They have some R superstars over there between Tan Ho and Evan Miyakawa. Um, I know that they they stand up some some uh, pretty awesome shiny apps and shiny infrastructure. Uh, so, so shout out to them and shout out to everybody working in this sports analytics space. Yeah, I've always had great respect for them. And yeah, shout out to Tan. He's taught me more than a few things about my shiny adventures. And uh, maybe someday he and I will get to streaming again. Who knows? But in any event, you know, one way to surface these nice, uh, you know, summaries and visualization, Mike, is to do a friendly looking dashboard, right? I mean, we create our share of dashboards and shiny and the like. And historically speaking, in the R ecosystem, one of the very popular ways to create a low friction dashboard was with Flex Dashboard from the R Markdown ecosystem. Well, certainly in the last couple of years, we've been singing the praises of this quote unquote next generation of reproducible computing with Quarto. Quarto is, for those that aren't aware, this new scientific publica- publication engine authored by Posit where you can have Markdown to power your reproducible research and R. Python, Julia, Observable JS. It is meant to be that execution engine to handle multi-language approaches to reproducible documentation, reproducible analysis. Ever since Quartal was first uh, spread onto the scene, probably one of the most common questions was, hey, where's Flex dashboard for Quartal? Well, guess what, folks? It is coming in the upcoming release of Quartal 1.4, there will be native support for Quartal dashboards. This has been a long time coming. So our next highlight is a great video screencast of building a Quartal dashboard in action by Charles Teague, who is a software architect over at Posit. And this goes for a basically from scratch in building a very simple, intuitive dashboard with Quartal. And if you are coming from Flex Dashboard, the mechanics of this are going to look quite familiar to you. Rows in the dashboard are going to be organized by headings that you would do in ordinary R Markdown. And then throughout, you can have code blocks that are going to populate the outputs that you want to show. And guess what? Any R code that produces, say, a visualization, a table, you know, HTML widget, it's all fair game. All web-based formats are more than welcome for outputs here in, in Quartal. 
And once you get up and running, you can do a lot with this. There are different ways to organize your layout structure. Everyone go in a row-wise fashion or a column-wise fashion. Again, this will all be very familiar to those of you that are coming from the uh, Flex Dashboard ecosystem. And through the documentation site that we'll have linked to in the, in the show notes here, you're going to get access to quite a few examples where, thanks to the magic of WebAssembly, you're going to be able to build these in real time and iterate with them and really be able to play with this yourself as you want to get a feel for it. I am slowly getting up to speed with this. I haven't built a dashboard with Quartal just yet, but I have uh, the underpinnings to do so with a project I'm kind of looking at from an analytics perspective for podcasting data. But I think Quartal is going to be a great way to create a very low friction dashboard that again is an HTML format. I could deploy that on any static site, say GitHub pages or whatnot, and be able to have a great dashboard to illustrate kind of some interesting insights. We'll also have a link in the show notes to a very early version of one of these in the wild by uh, Garrick Aiden Bowie, who is on the Shiny team at Posit. He created a Quartal dashboard shortly after I think I got wind of this release, and it was a great way to kind of see just what is possible in this space. So, so this is a great video tutorial by Charles on just getting up to speed with Quartal dashboarding quite quickly. But again, I think there's going to be a lot of possibilities that this empowers those of us in the data science communities leveraging Quartal already for our workflows. This is this is going to be huge, I believe. And we'll also have a link, speaking of bonus materials, it was a few weeks ago that J.J. Allaire, um, pre, uh, CEO of, of Posit, actually gave a keynote address at the Pi Data Conference of showing how to build Quartal dashboards with Python and Jupyter itself. So no matter which side of the data science stack you're on, Quartal is going to be very uh, friendly for you to build these dashboards with. So Mike, you're going to build a Quartal dashboard yet? For sure. And it's it's really nice to, I guess, have this option as well as, you know, just sort of the, the narrative type approach to building, um, you know, to, to performing a data analysis that we have as well. If you just want to use Quarto and maybe OJS, observable JS, uh, for instance, if you want to keep things client side as opposed to, to, to server side, or you can use that, that shiny engine, right, and make things interactive. But a great first walkthrough by, by Charles to show us sort of the ins and outs of, of getting started and up and running with Quarto and R. It's crazy how easy it is to build these layouts, whether you want to do it column wise or row wise, you want to include a tab set. So much of it is just just markdown, um, which is pretty incredible. And just you know, the number of uh, pound signs, if you will, or, or hashtags for the younger folks, uh, sort of determines you know where how you want that content laid out. Uh, just sort of your your H one or H two H three three headers can really control essentially how your content is going to be displayed, which is so quick for prototyping it's it's pretty incredible and as you said you know charles wraps up with um the the first sort of 75 percent of the video is focused for for our users and the last 25 percent is demonstrating how to take a jupyter notebook and port that into a quarto dashboard and it's 
it's it's quite easy. Um, it's just really one command line call that you're pointing at your uh, Jupyter Notebook, your .ipynb file, and that will take that Jupyter Notebook and convert it into a Quarto dashboard quite easily. Um, you know, Charles also shows us how to put that that shiny engine, that that server side processing behind your your notebook if that's something that you need or want to do but eric you know i think one of the the big draws towards flex dashboard or, or towards now these quarto dashboards as well is to be able to to do something that's that's fully client side right um to to build something sort of small uh right you don't want to have a giant data set probably you're probably not making uh api calls things like that um, connecting to databases or things like that necessarily if you are building one of these these Quarto dashboards. But in terms of just displaying data nicely, maybe having some interactive charts, I think I imagine with Quarto, just like Flex Dashboard, you can still leverage crosstalk for a little bit of that inter- interactivity um, that, that feels like a shiny experience. And it's just a phenomenal tool to have. So, you know, like I said, we have we have Shiny, we have Observable JS uh, within Quarto. Now we have Quarto dashboards, sort of the next evolution of Flex dashboards. So totally depending on your use case and sort of the power that you need uh, behind your, your dashboard, you have many, many options available, which is pretty awesome. And then we also have, you know, Shiny Live and using WebR for Shiny coming up as well. So... I don't know. Who knows if we're ever going to need servers ever again? Everything will just be client side. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to be a case, but it's it's pretty cool what we can do without a server these days and standing up sort of these quote unquote static or, or, or client side applications for folks. Yeah. And one use case I'm thinking of is um, a doc, maybe a quarter dashboard where the metrics is going to be updated maybe every day or every week or so. And Garrick's example, which again, we'll link to in the show notes you can hook this up with GitHub Actions, right? You know, grab that data, redeploy, and no one else is going to be aware of it. It's just going to look like it's always updated, right? I mean, you have so many, so many ways when you have this "quote unquote" standalone or client side, um, you know, mechanism that again won't be a, a use case for every single thing. But boy, when you can automate some of this and you've got you know a very streamlined set of metrics you want to update your team with or update an organization with. Boy, this is this is going to be a great great tool bo- tool in your toolbox, so to speak, to make all this happen. So lots of possibilities. I'm hoping to explore this early next year, and it's a great a great uh, advancement to the Quarto engine. Again, it's been one of the most highly requested features. So it's looking like that the 1.4 release will be happening in the first quarter next year. Obviously, they take these releases seriously, but you can run this preview build which is what i've been doing in my fancy schmancy docker container setup where hey you know what if i want to evaluate it and it doesn't work for me i just blow it away and go back to my normal system so lots of ways you can try out quartal and again lots of links in the show notes to some of these examples in action but i'm really excited to see where this goes me too yeah i think a, a use case that i can see Right away is like, uh, you know, if you have a machine learning model in production and you want daily or, or, or frequently updated statistics on how that model is performing, uh, you know, that, that doesn't need to be anything that's that's too crazy. You just want some, maybe some of those cards and a couple charts. And that's that's a quarter dashboard all the way. Very true. Very true. I can see a lot of projects next year. I'll be looking at this quite a bit once we get that production release in there. 
You know, Mike, in the first highlight, we were going down that bit of a rabbit hole with the analytics and NHL birth dates, right? Well, you can go down similar rabbit holes with, frankly, the R language itself. And that's where our last highlight is going to come into play. It comes to us from Mike Mahoney, who, again, has been a frequent contributor to the R Weekly highlights recently. And this all started with a kind of somewhat innocent post on one of the newer social media platforms called Blue Sky, where there was an inquisitive question from a gentleman named David Baker about why on earth does the view function in R start with a capital V? Do you know, Mike? I don't. I know now you know now or, exactly I, we yeah. may know now i'm not even sure if we do know now but we have some <laughs> we have some investigative work that was done that's right that's right and just how did this uh, happen right well instead of mike kind of or mike mahoney kind of wondering on his own he decided to see what we can do with the default set of packages that r comes with and figuring out just what what were the functions that do indeed have capital letters? Maybe there is a pattern associated with it. Well, sure enough, in the first part of the blog post that Mike writes here, we do a little, um, you know, base R kind of manipulation here with a set of set this V applies and filtering and whatnot. And sure enough, we see a many functions that have capital letters. There's about 26 of these. But guess what? 25 or 24 of these 26 start with either capital R or capital S. Now, those of you that know your history of R probably are, have a light bulb jogging off or lighting up right now because the R language, of course, is derived or inspired by the S language. And hence, a lot of these function names just kind of lend credence to that, that history, right? There is a function called URL decode that somehow starts with capital U, but when we talk about URLs, we typically do that anyway. And then you have view. So it does kind of stand out, so to speak, with that particular group. And now there's been some updates as Mike explored this because another um, post on Mastodon from Conrad Rudolph, Rudolph um, points out that there are plenty of functions that are in the base package itself that comes, you know, obviously with R itself that are capitalized for, I guess, reasons. <laughs> there isn't any real set rule around it. I'm looking at this list here. We've got like math.date or sys.date or ncal, next method, a bunch of these. And one of those is filter. There is a filter of a capital F that comes in base R. <laughs> there you go. So you got to be careful with your case just like with Linux, R is case sensitive, so you can have a completely different function implemented with just one change of a letter case. So there are lots of different ways to look at this. Um, but then, you know, looking at the view function even further, one of the ways that Mike tried to investigate this further is that, you know, thanks to efforts in the community, I believe by Winston Chang and others, we have in GitHub, in essence, the R source code that you can look at in a GitHub, obviously, uh, interface and look at kind of the tracing history of when these functions were built. Sure enough, the original version of the view function, again, with capital V, goes all the way back to 2007. Wow. Almost 17 years ago. Uh, I'm looking at these commits. They're 17 years old. It's incredible. 
My goodness, if I didn't feel old enough already at this age, now I feel really old. I still remember using that function in 2007 and not knowing heads or tails what was going on. That was very early in my R journey. But yeah, there's lots of little ways that we can look at this. But um, he decided to investigate this even further, looking at like the documentation for the function itself and its description noticing that it's data viewer with a capital V. Lots of interesting little tidbits here, but it's a lot of speculation as well. And then there's even other parts of the documentation that are looking at the title and description that don't capitalize it. So like it, it really isn't, there's not a real substantial pattern here, but R does have a long history. There are bound to be some idiosyncrasies that, Many are going to find in this, but if you ever want to investigate this, Mike's post gives you a good little template that you can start investigating these uh, function calls yourself. So um, be wary. I'm sure this will be quite a few rabbit holes if you decide to go on this journey, but an entertaining and thought-provoking post nonetheless from Mike Mahoney here and a really uh, interesting read. Definitely. You know, my, my team probably rolls their eyes at me quite a bit because I... I don't know if it's OCD or, or what it is, but I am somewhat of a stickler for like consistency, especially in Roxygen documentation. And we're looking at a lot of that here to try to get to the bottom of why this view function is capitalized, right? And we're like speculating <laughs> on proper nouns versus non-proper nouns and how perhaps the author of the original code uh, thought that you know things should be capitalized or or not capitalized. And it's a really interesting sort of just thought exercise and, and, and trip down the, the base R uh, source code, which is pretty cool. There's some couple comments here, I think from, from Nick Tierney and from Eway, of all people, uh, on this blog post as well. And Eway says, you know, he doesn't know why view is capitalized. Perhaps only the author knows and he doubts anyone wants to ask the author. Sometimes naming is just arbitrary. And he talks about, you know, even when a project's developed by by one person, you know you you can see inconsistencies. There's a lot. I, I can imagine there was quite a bit to manage in developing the R source code. So uh, you know, capitalization may slip by the wayside sometimes. And I think you know, as Eway says, style guides can help. And we have an internal style guide, but uh, that's that's very much adopted from like the Tidyverse style guide. I know that there's a, a Google style guide as well for styling your R and Python code. And I would highly recommend folks within their organizations, especially if you're collaborating and you're not sort of just a lone wolf, to have a style guide that your team uh, adopts works with, agrees on, and adheres to so that, you know, from project to project and from script to script, you are writing code that that looks consistent because what that's going to do is it's going to reduce the amount of time that it takes to review that code and collaborate on that code. That's that's my hot take, my opinion for the day. Eric, I can imagine that, that you uh, may have some similar hot takes and some similar experience at the day job of, of code styling and, and linting and collaboration. Oh, very much so. In fact, I was just showing you in the pre-show a situation where we had a shiny app that was like almost 2,700 lines of code in one file, but inside that, a healthy mix of different variable name syntaxes and the like. So 
you know, a lot of times this comes up with teams that are adopting R in their workflows for the first time at my organization. And they always ask, oh, well, how should we write it? Like, what, what's the, what's the, what's our organization style got? I'm like, well, I think it's a very in, you know, personal kind of choice for that particular team. But if you start being consistent, just be consistent. A tidy verse guide is a great start, as you said, but just be consistent because it's going to make code reviews so much easier. It'll help, you know, eliminate some mishaps with maybe not running a function correctly because the indentation was was out of whack and the, the person couldn't see heads or tails of what was a default and what was not. Lots of things that can happen when you have too much variation, especially when you have more than one person contribute to a code base. But of course, I don't live in a glass house here, so to speak. You look at my old code from like 17 years ago, like the history of that view function. Yeah, that stuff didn't fit a style guide, folks. I was just kind of learning my ropes. So it'll probably be an evolving target for all of you. But once you get used to it, once you find a, a style that suits you best, just be consistent. That's my biggest uh, takeaway from that. You know what's else consistent, Mike? Well, every single week, our weekly is right there for you with some great additional you know, content for your R viewing pleasure. Maybe those of you that are wrapping up the year, you'll get some extra time to level up your R knowledge with what we have in each issue, whether it's a new package, great showcase of data science in action, you know, new community initiatives and whatnot. So we're going to take a couple of minutes to talk about some additional finds that we've seen in this issue. And for me, this is um, somewhat timely because I have, for many projects, I'll have a subdirectory. I usually call it either scratch or prototyping, where I'm going to experiment with code that I don't think is really useful other than my iteration of it. And then I kind of let it be. But you know what? Sometimes that's selling ourselves a bit short. Maybe that is actually useful to somebody in ways that we don't quite expect. So this is a great blog post that I'm going to call out here in my additional highway from Rasmuth Both um, has a great uh, title for this post. Get a Git repo where your team can stow their throwaway data science code. You know what? You never know, right? Maybe you are coding up that cool little visualization for a slide deck. Or you stumbled upon that awesome trick with Per or, or a Tidyverse for wrangling that complicated data. And you may never use it again. But you know what? Instead of just letting that wither on your file system, throw it in some kind of repo. Maybe a GitHub repo. Maybe a GitLab repo. Whatever your organization or your team has to share your knowledge. Just put it somewhere and hopefully a way that you can easily find it via search. Because too often times I'll see some of these snippets that you talk about hot takes, Mike, here comes mine, that they're stored in like chat messages. And boy, oh boy, I sometimes don't have the best luck finding a nugget of R code in a team's chat, just saying. So throwing it into a more robust repository, even if you don't clean it up, just throw it there somewhere. You absolutely never know when someone else might find it useful. That's a great tip. I couldn't agree more. It's it's one that I hadn't necessarily thought of before. I know folks have a lot of different ways of uh, you know having their own personal notebooks and, and how they sort of store thoughts and code and snippets and things like that. I'm a huge fan of GitHub, uh, so that, using a repository for that I think is fantastic, fantastic idea. Uh, a couple highlights that I want to point out uh, as well are. 
some posit released uh had a video recently with databricks and we do a lot of work with databricks that shows how it's sort of easier now to connect to a databricks backend a databricks cluster um to run your r code against uh within within posit team and posit workbench and, and those products it's very easy to connect to that cluster and it looks like coming soon uh you'll actually potentially be able to have your posit products uh your your posit connect workbench uh posit team all within the databricks environment if that's something that you you choose so sort of a single place for your your, your data your clusters and your development environment which could be pretty interesting for folks that are working at the intersection of posit products and databricks as well um, and the last one that i want to shout out is a blog post from carson sievert and garrick aiden buey that talks about shiny for r updates we've been talking about a lot of shiny for python a lot of shiny live um so i am thrilled to see a blog post about shiny for r for the ogs like us and it's a lot of updates to bs lib i think the new sliders uh input sliders look look really really nice these slider inputs um it looks like the the little ball that you would click on to slide the slider back and forth left and right has grown in size, which I think is is really cool, and it's just sort of modernizing a lot of UI components. Uh, the the uh, cards, in particular, look really really clean, which which are really nice. The info boxes and things like that. You have the ability to uh, have text within your cards, icons within those cards, and also now add a color gradient as the background in those cards, which looks really really cool. Uh, the ability to go from light to dark mode has gotten easier, it looks like, and it looks like as well that it's it's a really smooth built-in transition between light and dark mode as well. They take care of a lot of the, the theming and styling and CSS, I'm sure, that goes on behind the scenes to figure out you know what sort of dark contrasts are necessary given the uh, visuals that you're trying to display. Uh, should be employed, which is really, really cool. And there are some updates to, uh, I guess there were updates to the selectties.js uh, JavaScript package, which powers select input and select ties input functions in Shiny. You shouldn't notice uh, a, a ton of differences. It looks like maybe um, some some very minor UI differences, a little, little X next to everything that you select that allows you to maybe deselect things a little easier. Uh, than you might have before, but it should be a little bit more of a smoother experience. But they ask that if you do see any new bugs in this migration to the new uh, JavaScript package that powers these inputs to definitely let the team know by filing an issue on GitHub. So I'm excited about how beautiful Shiny apps have now become with BSLib. I know you are as well, Eric. We're like BSLib all the time. We can't uh, migrate apps to BSLib or build new apps with BSLib fast enough <laughs> over here at Catchbrook. Um, so really excited to see these updates from the team. You, me as well. And I was just showing you a little preview um, in our pre-show, an app that I did build from the ground up, resurrecting one that was three years old in the old layout, but with BSLib power dashboarding, with the elements that come out of the box, like collapsible and these new slider, you know, frameworks, the new select ties and everything. I even wowed a self-professed cynic on my team of the way shiny apps used to look. And he's like, wow, 
that looks pretty good. And I'm like, okay, job well done. I fooled him. And it's still shiny. I didn't move to something else, but with VS Lib, it's just modernizing that UX experience. So I, I yeah, I cannot give enough uh, thanks to, to Garrick and Carson and the shiny team for still pushing, pushing shiny for R and, we have a lot at our fingertips to make these attract these applications both attractive and performant. And yeah, these are topics that are near and dear to Mike's and I's hearts, so to speak, because we did a workshop on this earlier this year, and the BSWIP was front and center for the example app that we put in there. So really excited to see where this takes us for sure. And you know where else we can take you? Well, we hope we can invite you to check out our weekly itself, of course. We have all the the current issue and all the back issues um, already available at rweekly.org so you can catch up on what you missed and uh, see that awesome resource maybe we talked about a few weeks ago. It's all searchable. It's all right there for the taking. And we hope you enjoyed this very podcast and we love hearing from you. You can do this a few different ways. You can use the contact page, which is in this episode's show notes and every episode's show notes. It never changes. It's always there. And also, if you're on the, the new age of modern podcast apps like Podverse, Fountain, Castomatic, Podfans, you can send us a fun little boost along the way like our friends uh, Chris and Kyle did recently. Um, they were very generous of their time and, and value, and we appreciate that as well. We always love hearing from you. And also, you can get in touch with us on the uh, social medias. I am sporadically on the X thing at, at the Rcast, but I'm more likely to be found on Mastodon these days, where I am at our podcast at podcastindex.social. I'm also on LinkedIn from time to time, and I want to give a, a special thanks while I have an audio moment here. Uh, yesterday, I was part of a very uh, fun and, and informative webinar on the use of R for and Shiny for clinical submissions. So a huge shout out to my uh, colleagues at the FDA, uh, Paul Schutte and Hui Su Cho for a great uh, presentation to join me on on our journey and Ning Lang from Roche to organize all that. So thanks for joining me for that. And we'll have the recording up on YouTube uh, very soon. But speaking of recordings, while I'm doing more plugs, the R Pharma recordings are up online now. So you can find that on the R Pharma YouTube channel as well. And I'm sure we'll be putting some spotlights on that in the coming weeks. But, uh, Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? That's awesome. Awesome, Eric. Congratulations on a a great webinar yesterday. And I, for one, am super excited to watch all of the R Pharma recordings as well. There is a ton of excellent content uh, within those videos. So I I can't wait to dive in. Do want to shout out Mel Salmon for for shouting us out on Mastodon this past week, uh, thanking us for highlighting uh, the CLI posts that she put together. Keep on bringing the CLI posts and any other posts that you want to author, Mel. Uh, we, we appreciate it. As well, you can find me on LinkedIn if you look at Catchbrook Analytics, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. That's probably the best place to find me or on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.com. Very, very nice, Mike. And um, yeah, we will have uh, just one or two more episodes left this year. But yeah, it's been been a great journey and um, looking forward to some more great content along the way. But uh, yeah, you've you've heard us enough here, but um, we're going to close up shop. Uh, We look forward to hopefully hearing from you again in the audience. But uh, we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week. Great video tutorial by 
by George to get this off um, and be able to whet your appetite a little bit for not George. Hey! It's Charles. <laughs> ha! Knew it. Okay, try that again.